Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then engage in dialogue with them in a special discussion group on LinkedIn. This year, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement on bookends, and my guest today is Julie Gaybauer, who is co-author of the book, Closing the Engagement Gap. Following today's interview, you are invited to engage Julie in conversation on LinkedIn. Just log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends, the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers, and you can dialogue with Julie and other authors who are also members of this group. Here you will find a link to a recording of today's interview, as well as, uh, as, well as previous interviews on employee engagement. Invite your friends to join this group and listen and discuss with you. I'm Susan Stamm, and I am pleased to have Julie Gaybauer as our guest on Bookends today. Julie is the global leader of Towers Parents ISR line of business and overseas Tower Parents workforce effectiveness practice. She consults on a broad range of business people and performance issues, including workforce analytics, human capital strategy, talent management, and total rewards. Julie is a frequent speaker on global workforce management and total rewards and has taught executive education seminars at Harvard University and the University of Wisconsin. She has also appeared in both print and broadcast media as an expert commentator on trends and developments in human capital, employee engagement, talent management, and rewards. Before joining Towers Parent in 1986, she was with another major consulting firm. Julie Gaybauer is co-author of the book, Closing the Engagement Gap, along with Don Lohman. To get a copy of this book, visit www.towersparent.com forward slash gap forward slash index dot htm. Julie Gaybauer, welcome to Bookends. Thank you, Susan. It's really great to be with you today. I really enjoyed your book and uh, looking forward to discussing it with you. In your opening chapter, you discuss employee engagement's relevance in an economic downturn, and I wondered if, uh, if you were uh, prophesizing where we might be as you, were, as you were writing. Why do you feel companies should be really paying attention to employee engagement right now? And can you, point, uh, uh, can you paint a picture for us of, of just what employee engagement can really look like if, if organizations really embrace it? Sure. Now, first of all, I was absolutely not trying to form a prophecy around the, the economy. Um, but we have known for a long time that employee engagement is a very important differentiator for companies across industry segments and around the world. And at a time like now when organizations must be focused on leveraging every single competitive advantage to get through the downturn and position themselves well for the inevitable upturn, it's absolutely essential to focus on engagement. There is a considerable and very compelling body of evidence that shows higher employee engagement leads to stronger business outcomes. Now, the reverse can be said as well, but the stronger indicator is from engagement to business outcomes. One study we conducted of 50 global companies showed that high engagement companies outperform low engagement companies by a very wide margin in metrics like revenue growth and operating margin. And in that study, we looked at 
engagement first and business performance second. So we were very clear that business performance did not derive, derive engagement in that instance. Uh, employee engagement also generates consistent delivery of an organization's brand, new creativity, exceptional customer service, and commitment to excellence of product and processes. So um, what you might see when you see an engaged employee is someone who not only identifies problems, but also offers solutions to go with those. Engaged employees take ownership for change, they look for new challenges, and they selflessly help colleagues and customers alike and you will see them always and hear them always speaking with pride about their organization. That's exactly what we uh, all want to achieve, isn't it? Indeed. You, you and your colleagues at Towers Parent have undertaken a rather large initiative in your global workforce study on which the recommendations in, of your uh, book are, are actually based. And I found the results of, of, the, research, of the, the research really fascinating. Uh, in fact, in an interesting way for me, it was somewhat disturbing but also hopeful. I, I would be interested to hear your personal reactions to the research. Um, and in particular, uh, what might have come from the project that you would say might be new or different as you think about employee engagement? And if you'd also uh, be willing to share the top ten global drivers of employee engagement uh, identified through the research and and, and how or if these have been impacted by the economic downturn in any way? That's a lot of questions, so I'll try to tackle all of them. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. So um, to start with, when we conducted our research, we looked back over a number of years and said, gosh, this notion of employee engagement is something that we know organizations are striving for, but the scores don't seem to be changing. And I personally wondered if we were asking organizations to do something like tilt at windmills, that maybe this was an elusive goal that could never be achieved. So when we, we structured our research, we cast a very broad net to evaluate the level of engagement, but also to see what might create an engaged employee, including testing whether it's all about personality. Is, is it more or less a personality trait? Again, because we wanted to confirm that companies could actually do something to influence engagement rather than, than um, if, make sure they weren't wasting money on this effort. So what we found is pretty interesting. We found that employees by and large, individuals who work have an inclination to be engaged. The vast majority, over 85%, want to be challenged in their work. They set high personal standards. They set high professional standards. They are far from those individuals depicted in that sitcom called The Office who can't wait to get out the door at 5 o'clock. Employees are looking for a great fit in which they can be engaged. So that was the first thing we found, that, that basically Jeff Allen, who depicts the, the cynics in Dilbert and, and these other things, are, are actually not accurately pick, depicting the global workforce. 
The other thing we found is that the most important factor influencing employee engagement is not one's personality, and it's also not one's boss. It's actually the organization and its leaders. That is not to say the boss isn't important, but rather the boss cannot have much influence on engagement if the organization and its senior leaders don't do their parts first. I like to think of it as the boss being the distribution network for the organizational policies and procedures that deliver engagement. Those two findings were big news. We found out that employees have the inclination to be engaged. We also found out that they weren't very engaged, hence the engagement gap. And we found out companies can do something about it if they pull the right levers. And when we think about the lever, those levers, those are the top 10 drivers of engagement that you mentioned, Susan. We found that the majority of those drivers are organizational factors. So, for example, the number one driver of engagement is senior leadership's sincere interest in employee well-being. I love to repeat that. Senior leadership's sincere interest in employee well-being. And what could that mean? That means that leaders are open and honest in their communication. They're accessible and visible to employees. They communicate the rationale for decisions as well as the decisions themselves. They have a sense of empathy. Senior management's sincere interest in employee well-being, the number one driver of employee engagement around the world and in virtually every country where we surveyed. The second most influential driver of engagement is an organization's opportunities for learning and development, people wanting to develop their skills and abilities further, ensuring that they're working for an organization that provides the opportunity to do so. And number three was also a bit of a surprise. It's the organization's reputation for corporate social responsibility. Initial reaction on that is, well, that's all about the Gen Y coming into the workforce and their focus on the environment and everything, and that's really the, the, what's driving the results. But that's actually not the case. That is an important driver across generations, and in fact, it's a higher driver for people who are at the tail end of their career than it is for the people entering the workforce. Um, and I think it's important to, as we think about that older generation focusing on sustainability, this notion of corporate social responsibility is one that resonates very well with them. And so all three of those drivers are focused on the organization and decisions that senior leadership takes around policies and programs for the organization. Indeed, many of these drivers don't manifest themselves in the day-to-day -day work experience unless the boss actually brings them to life, but it has to start with the organization. Now, in, the, the rest of the, the drivers are, are focused on many organizational issues. There are two drivers in there that actually do have to do with one's own personality. Someone who sets high personal standards is more inclined to be highly engaged. The good news is 85% of the people out there intend to set high standards for themselves. So um, the big factors where we can make a big difference is all around the organization, the company doing things differently. Now, the economic downturn, as 
you asked, Susan, has indeed had an impact on the, the engagement drivers. It hasn't necessarily driven a wider or bigger engagement gap, but organizations haven't made progress against that gap either. What we have found is that the categories of engagement drivers, while similar, focused on leadership, focused on career development, and focused on corporate image and reputation are still there in the top three, but the, the details underlying those categories are a bit different. So indeed, what we find is that senior management's change management capabilities, their ability to lead people through challenging times are more influential today than they were when we did the global workforce study in the middle of, 2000, uh, of 2007. That certainly makes sense. And, uh, you know, the leadership uh, people skills that are needed during these times are, are absolutely critical. Th throughout your book, you use um, illustrations from a really wonderful group of organizations you refer to as the Engaging Eight. And I found myself really admiring these companies by the time I finished your book. Each one of them is unique, of course, but I wondered if you might be able to introduce these eight players uh, briefly and, and just uh, share any commonality that earned them this mm -hmm. designation um, and has contributed to their obvious success. These organizations actually cover a wide range of industries and geographies. The common things are their strong performance from a financial and business perspective, in fact, many of them have actually pulled out a very difficult situation. The other commonality is that all of them have a CEO who believes that employee engagement is a key to delivering stronger performance. They, these organizations have CEOs who do have a sincere interest in employee well-being and their engagement levels are strong. The companies are Campbell Soup, EMC, Honeywell, McKesson, MGM Grand, North Shore LIJ Health System, Novartis, and REI. So as I said, a wide range of industries, but strong performing organizations with CEOs who put people at the top of the list. And we'll look forward to hearing a lot more about them as, as we go, uh, because I, I think they'll come up in some, in some various examples in, in our interview today. Um, in, in your first strategy, major strategy in the book, you call it Know Them. Uh, you talk about the role of psychographics uh, and how this can uh, play into employee engagement. Can you tell us how and when this would be useful and share a few examples from the Engaging, engaging Eight? Sure. When we talk about psychographics, we talk about attributes relating to personality, values, attitudes, lifestyles that shape um, an individual and, and will also shape his or her emotional, rational, and motivational drivers of engagement. An important thing to consider because the way we define engagement involves connection of the head heart and hands of an employee with the organization. So all of these things influencing those connections are important. And we have found that um, these factors do help influence the level of engagement, but more importantly, um, the things that drive engagement, as I said. Um, 
Psychographics, I believe, are important in really developing a macro-level knowledge of employees as well as a micro-level knowledge of employees. At a macro-level, I encourage, and Don and I encourage organizations to really understand the broad trends one sees in the population without getting caught up in stereotypes. So understanding the percentage of your workforce who are millennials, the percentage who are baby boomers, and even some veterans that, that are there, um, understanding the, the differences in, um, in the cultural, the national cultural attributes and the, the um, attributes that are common in various parts of the world. Um, and at the same time, not, as I said before, don't focus just on the stereotypes. Understand that each individual is unique and it's important to understand the specific things that drive and motivate an individual. Um, a couple of examples I think are pretty interesting. REI has reduced its turnover very significantly. REI is an outdoor equipment retailer, very interesting organization led by Sally Jewell. And as many of the listeners probably know, um, turnover attrition in the retail industry is quite high typically. And by tailoring career development, by focusing on skill building for entry-level people because they knew about their psychographics, and by focusing on more formal management training at people who were more mid-level, they were able to really tap the, the, into the, the um, hidden potential of their employees and also keep them as part of the organization. They stay with REI for longer today than they did in prior times. Another example is Campbell Soup. Um, they do training for managers who tend to be in the Gen Y category and the baby boomers on how to interact with millennials to make sure that they're enabling millennials to become engaged and are finding ways to engage millennials. One of the, the three sets of guidelines found in the Know Them strategy area relate to what managers should know about their employees. Could you walk us through these tips and tell us from your experience why managers might miss these opportunities? Sure. It's important, I believe, for managers to know the aspects of the employment deal, if you will, that are most meaningful to employees, to understand whether it's the compensation, the location, the flexibility in the work environment that really bring people to a com the company, keep them there, or engage them. They should understand an employee's career aspirations, also limitations on where um, a career could go. They should understand the reason the employee is at your company in your job, and what actually drove them from their prior employer because, gosh, you don't want to make the same mistake and lose this valuable employee. Um, a manager should understand what might make an employee become at risk for leaving the organization, what's really important to him or her. They should also know what really inspires their employees. And finally, they should know their interests outside work. Uh, when a manager recognizes an employee and 
gives them more than a pat on the back, but wants to recognize them with a meaningful gift, that gift that relates to interests outside work is going to be really special to the individual, demonstrating a manager's interest in the employees. They, they sound like basic things, sort of common sense. Yeah, every manager should know this about an employee, but managers do miss these things. And Susan, plain and simply, it's because they don't ask and they don't listen. Um, and it's a big mistake to leave this to guesswork. We know, I know, managers today are player coaches, and they're judged as much on their personal output as team output, and there's pressure of time pressure limiting them in terms of how much they can focus on their teams. But um, team output, team productivity will be minimized, or, or rather less than optimal, if managers don't engage their employees and understanding these sorts of things will help managers understand. Um, you know, no company that I've ever come across leaves customer opinion to guesswork. And if we think about employees as the most important investors in our organizations, they invest their time, their energy, their wit, the most important investors in our organization, why would we leave their opinion to guesswork as well? Managers need to ask and they need to listen. Yeah, they certainly do. And they need to be provided the time to be able to do both. Oh, yes. <laughs> you mentioned the, the player coach role becoming far more prevalent. Your book also offers what you call the 10 Golden Rules of Engagement Survey Success. and These are obviously gleaned from your extensive experience in, in this area all of these years, uh, Julie, that you've been doing this work. Can you share some of these with us and explain why each is important? Yeah. So in terms of just to put some um, meat behind your comment about the, the amount of experience we have in this area, we surveyed just in one year about 400 companies and about 4 million employees around the world. Um, and so we, we do have extensive experience. And we've seen surveys add tremendous value to organizations, and we've seen surveys do mediocre jobs. The things that make a difference are, are, are listed in the book. There are 10 rules, but I'll, I'll highlight a couple of them. The first one is to measure what matters. I said before, when we did our global workforce study, we cast our net broadly so that we could understand uh, if, if this really made a difference, if there were things under our control as companies that could drive employee engagement. And so it's important not to narrow the scope so much that you might miss the real drivers of engagement. Some surveys are narrowed down to focus just on the immediate boss. And so there is nothing in that survey that will tell you about what company policies and how company policies and procedures might be relevant to engagement, or they don't tell you what senior leadership's relevance to employee engagement might be. So measure what matters. Start with a broad understanding of the categories that drive engagement and make sure to include those in the areas being tested in the survey. The second thing that's really important is to focus on the things that actually make a difference to the company's success, focused on the company's strategy. There are 
cultural attributes, corporate cultural attributes that are more important for organizations focused on one particular strategy or another. An organization focused on customer service might need, does need, a different corporate culture than one focused simply on efficiency. So highlighting those aspects of the culture that are really important to driving strategy is another thing that needs to be incorporated into the survey. Importantly, don't survey on things that you're not willing to internalize and act on. Um, another really important thing is benchmarking. Benchmarking answers to, to, to questions is really important um, so that you can understand context and the relevance of various scores. Um, it's very well known that individuals who respond to a survey who happen to um, live in Mexico or Brazil tend to respond using the scale, if it's a five-point scale, from three to five on the positive end, whereas people sitting in Japan or Korea tend to use the scale from one to three. So if you just look at scores and say, wow, I've got really positive scores in Mexico and really terrible scores in Japan, you might come to a conclusion that everything is well in Mexico and it's not very well at all in Japan, when indeed, if you look at national averages about how, national norms in terms of how people respond to surveys, you might indeed find that the Japan scores are relatively better than the Mexican scores. So that benchmarking is incredibly important and it's important to benchmark based on national culture, industry, and then we encourage organizations to, to target high performance, um, high performance scores, which we, we track with organizations that perform high in the workplace and in the marketplace. The last point around survey relates back to not asking about things you're not acting on. I think it's really important to tell employees what you found in the survey, but then also act on the survey results and don't just act on the survey results at a local level and say it's up to each team to figure out an action plan, but act on the survey results at the enterprise level too. The CEO and his or her team ought to really identify two or three key priorities that come from the survey, just as that should two or three key priorities should be established at the business segment level, at geographic level, and at the local team level. So that's not all 10, but that's some, some food for thought on um, uh, making a survey have higher impact in your organization. Important tips there. Thank you. Um, one of the, the eight organizations you profile, North Shore Long Island Jewish Healthcare System, is not only one of the most profitable healthcare systems in the northeastern U.S., it also enjoys a 96% employee retention rate and has a full complement of nurses. And uh, working this is amazing. Yeah, amazing. I, I was amazed. We work a, a lot in the healthcare industry, and I was really impressed with with uh, yeah. those, that data. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how they are achieving these results? Well, I'll start with. Michael Dowling. Michael Dowling is the CEO of North Shore LIJ Health System, and 
he took over there about nine years ago when things weren't going so well, when financial results weren't great and patient satisfaction scores were not very good either. Um, when he took over, he decided that he would turn around the organization through people. He created a culture of continuous learning. And what he wanted to do was arm the workforce with, with tools, with knowledge that enabled them to release their great ideas um, and, in his words, sort of increase their capacity, intellect, and their skills to meet the demands of the, of the marketplace. I think he gave employees a renewed sense of value. I don't think employees were feeling so good working for North Shore LIJ in almost any any role about nine or ten years ago, and, and you could see that in their attrition rates. Um, he changed that. He gave people a passion for their work. The best example of this deals with allied health professionals. He determined that the two key roles in driving patient satisfaction were nurses, an obvious one, but also the allied health professionals that enter a room and clean it up. Um, that if they could change the way those individuals interacted with patients, um, they would have a strong influence on patient satisfaction scores. So, Nine years ago, one might have asked one of these individuals what they did for a living, and you would have heard any one of them say, I clean rooms at the hospital. And today, to a person, almost to a person, you ask these people what they do, and because of the way that Michael has established their roles and connected their jobs to the vision of the organization, they will say they do two things. The first is to prevent infection. The second is to ensure the customer, the, ensure the patient's comfort. Wow. So rather than barging into a room unannounced, making a bunch of noise, knocking the bed table, they knock on the door, they ask if they can enter, and only if the patient provides permission to, for the, the the allied health professional to enter the room, do they actually enter the room? It's the patient's private space on a temporary basis. When they come into the room, they don't just rush over to clean out the garbage. They actually take the time to ask the patient how he or she is doing, how he or she is feeling, whether the individual had a chance to order the meal for the day, if they received the meal, if they needed anything from another room, did they have enough tissues, how are they feeling in general, and did they need help from anyone else? They have a conversation with the patient, and they make sure that before they leave the room, they check on many different things that would make the patient more comfortable. And patient satisfaction scores are among the strongest in the metro New York area and North Shore LIJ. These employees feel very valued. Um, they know they have a CEO who cares about them. So that's just one great example of how Michael Dowling has 
given employees a, a passion for their work. He trained them, he, not personally, but he enabled the training of these individuals to do their jobs a bit differently. In any event, the, the entire, that's one example, there's an overall continuous learning effort and it has led to improvements that create shorter wait times when people move across departments. Test results are available more quickly. There's great service in the cafeteria for family and friends. Um, and so uh, it's through the, the grow them notion that Michael Dowling has created an entirely um, higher performing organization at North Shore LIJ. And listening to you and, and reading about this organization is a bit reminiscent of the old NASA story about putting the man on the moon when the janitor was asked what he was doing. Um, I thought it was an interesting parallel of, of yeah. uh, how this CEO achieved this. Your, your data, um, as well as data coming from other sources, I, I would say, seem to indicate that the importance of education and learning is really an important strategy, a business strategy. Do you feel companies are using this to their advantage, and how can organizations transition from offering job security to, to uh, career security? A, a great question, Susan, and I think organizations are doing some things in this area, but they can do much more in the area of growing employees. I believe that they could design structured experiences that not only challenge employees and build their skills, but also support the broader business strategies. Importantly, I think like Michael Dowling, they need to identify the pivotal roles in their organization, those key roles that drive business outcomes and the important actions that, that people in those roles need to take to affect outcomes like customer satisfaction, like revenue, like profitability. And then they need to help people in those roles understand the behaviors, the skills, the information that they need to deliver the results. So um, I think, you know, thinking about a hotel as an example that where it, profits are really dependent on repeat business, um, what they would say is the main reason it draws repeat customers is perhaps a combination of convenient locations and having business services at the hotel. So managers of those hotels need to be trained on where to, to expand and they need to have the skills on how to incorporate business services into the hotels and, and organizations that focus on skills development in those areas, in the areas that make a difference to business outcomes, I believe are those that are going to really accelerate their progress in the future. I agree. You also talk in the book about the need to be able to create a safe place where people can learn and also fail. Can you give us an example of how an organization might view their personally being able to benefit from failure? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things here, Susan. I think it starts with a CEO or a business leader at another level uh, being willing to make, to admit that he or she is not perfect and that he or she has made mistakes and has learned from those mistakes 
throughout their career. I think John Hammergren says it well when he talks about the piece from McKesson, talks about his development as a CEO and the fact that he really didn't know a lot when he took over the, the helm and that he's learned through mistakes. So he doesn't hide that fact um, and makes it very clear that he's still been successful even um, as he's learned from his mistakes. I think the, the best example I've, I've seen that's been well publicized about a safe place to learn and fail comes from Google. They're, they're not one of our engaging eight, but I think it's just, just it's an example I love. Um, it, um, it was publicized in Fortune and a number of other publications, and Larry Page supposedly um, told one of his senior executives just how much he valued a multi-million dollar mistake, multi-million dollars. And he said, okay, okay, you shouldn't have done that. You'll know better next time, but Oh, by the way, I'm really glad that you made this mistake. I'm glad because if we're not making mistakes as an organization, then it demonstrates we're not taking risks, and if we're not taking risks, we won't get to the next level. It's a great example, a uh, publicized example, of establishing a place, a, a safe place to learn and fail, publicizing those things, and for successful executives is one way to demonstrate to people at all levels that it's okay to do so. Now, of course, there are some things where you, you really can't have failure and you need to have safety nets. And so it's important to, to put the safeguards around some things, um, but having this culture is really uh, an opportunity for people to, to, de to develop in a significant way. Absolutely. Um, there are a, a great number of ideas and examples in this chapter on learning which are really quite strategic but would also engage employees. And one sec uh, section of the chapter you talk about uh, what you call real-world educational approaches. And one of the examples was the MGM Culinary Challenge, which I absolutely loved. I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about this kind of approach and why it's so effective. Yeah, and, and I'm going to focus first, Susan, on North Shore LIJ. Sure. Um, they, they really get this notion that real-world application makes the learning experience stick. Uh, and without it, it's hard to retain some of the development. So organizations that, that do learning and development right, that really grow their employees, utilize on-the-job training and these real-world applications in a very... Um, a strategic way. So North Shore LIJ um, have a leadership development program, and they are unapologetic about uh, about the fact that it's a selective a selective program. And they say basically anyone can get into it. And here are the criteria. Um, so they're very open about it that it's selective, and are very clear about the criteria. Within that program, what they do is they put people through some very um, significant and meaningful development programs, and at the end of it, they assign these individuals across function, across different healthcare, um, different hospitals, um, assignments. They, they, they ask them to solve issues that are real to the organization. Um, maybe they're not absolutely urgent, but they say, here's an issue we have, help us fix it based on what you just learned. So 
over the last number of years, they had a number of people who were taught the, the lean project management and lean process management techniques, and at the end of their training, they said, okay, look at our CAT scan process. Right now, it takes 21 hours to, to turn around CAT scans. Look at it and fix it. We need it to be fewer hours. So a team of people from across function looked at this and put to get put to use their learning, and they reduced the CAT scan turnaround time to 11 hours, from 21 hours to 11 hours. This is a group of leaders in training who did this. Um, not only did they do that, but they increased the number of CAT scans that could be scheduled in a day, which also led to increased patient satisfaction, those patients who who needed to have this test. So that's one example at North Shore LIJ. Um, MGM Grand, the hotel casino, sets out this culinary challenge that you mentioned, another way that they put real-world um, approaches, training approaches to work. And what this does is it puts chefs from all of the, the hotel's various kitchens, kitchens in a contest, uh, one against the other. They're asked to use the same ingredients. They're given a limited amount of time, and they're said, voila, prepare a dish. And um, they, need to, they need to perform as well as prepare the dish. And it's a really um, high-energy event that really helps the chefs sharpen their talent, but also display their talent, and it helps them perfect their craft, not just what they're doing for the hotel. And it sounds fun. Doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, before we leave, uh, this this really was my favorite chapter, this this area of, of learning in the book. Surprise, surprise. Julie, would uh -huh. you share <laughs> the story uh, about how North Shore solved its needs for EEG technicians uh, to staff its new Neural Surgery Institute that was also part of this learning uh, section of the book? Yeah, so calling on Michael Dowling's philosophy that he's got great people in the organization, as they were building their new neural surgery institute, he said, rather than go out and hire a whole bunch of new people, let's see how many people inside the organization would like to be EEG technicians. So he and Kathy Gallo, the head of their um, Center for Learning and Innovation, um, partnered with a, col a local college to create a curriculum around um, to train the e people as EEG technicians. And then they, again, unabashedly put out, uh, said, anyone in the organization who wants to, to train for this, you need to apply and you need to make this application. You need to fill it out and we're going to judge as to whether you're actually going to be a good student or not. And hundreds, hundreds of people took the test filled out the application to qualify for the course, and they found many people who did qualify for the course. They paid for the course. Now, the course was held in the evening or at times when individuals weren't otherwise working, so this was above and beyond. People had to commit to this, but the hospital was paying for it. Um, and a number of people graduated with a certificate that qualified them to work in the New Neurosurgery Institute. And there's a really great vignette in the book for those of you who have an opportunity to read it about how this really changed the life of someone who was previously cleaning rooms. 
Uh, it provided a brand new career path for this individual. He really went above and beyond in terms of making the time to take this course, uh, but now is um, reading EEGs rather than sweeping floors. Yeah, that's a win-win uh, for the employee and sure organization. Is. In your, your chapter called Inspire Them, you offer four strategies at the organizational level to develop pride in employees. Can you talk about these a little bit? Sure. Um, it starts with the basics. Um, we think it starts with running a successful company. So we talked. I talked earlier about the importance of engagement driving business performance. I mentioned as well that the reverse is true, or the converse is true as well. Um, so make sure to inspire your employees. You've set out a strong vision, um, and you uh, are running the organization successfully. Um, it then continues with a strong set of values. Um, the, the CEOs in our, among our engaging eight all have very strong belief in values, and they just didn't throw a bunch of popular words up on the wall. They live these values, and they require their, their um, teams to live these values. Um, one of the organizations, this wasn't published, but we did learn this through our interviews with the CEOs. One of the organizations was going through some pretty significant change, and, and he was absolutely focused on values. Um, one of the values was respect. And in a very, um, in a senior executive meeting, one of his team were in that meeting giving a presentation and had a, a more junior level colleague with him. Um, this other executive, not the CEO, this other executive um, was a bit abusive of the individual who was there supporting him in the presentation. This other individual was pressing the buttons on the computer to advance the slides, wasn't doing it quickly enough. And then there was a typo on one of the slides, uh, and there was great disrespect shown for the more junior individual in the room, at which point the CEO said, excuse me, Mr. X, it's time to leave. You should go home now. And he just was taken aback, uh, was very surprised. Um, and said, I'm not sure I understand you, and the CEO said, really, it's time for you to leave. Um, I'd like you to leave the, the room now. And so the executive left. The CEO looked at the more junior, consult junior individual in the room and said, I think you've probably been very involved in putting together this presentation. Sorry that you ended up with a typo there. But what I'd like you to do at this point is take us through to the end because I'm sure you can lead us through this discussion. Wow. And the next day, the executive who showed disrespect in front of a group of other senior executives to a valued employee of the organization was asked to leave the organization for good. That is living values. Um, so that's part of inspiration, living the values. Um, there's another part of, of inspiration, and it's being a good corporate citizen. It relates to that third engagement driver I talked about, having a reputation for um, strong corporate social responsibility. Uh, and there are some organizations who can do this through their mission, organizations like Novartis who create 
drugs to prevent malaria, and they can send those drugs to, to third world countries to help people survive there. Um, organizations like McKesson focused on healthcare, organizations like North Shore LAJ focused on healthcare. But it also exists at organizations like MGM Grant, a hotel casino. Um, by setting up um, programs within the organization that help others in the organization um, when they're in time of need. And then finally, it's having a great reputation um, as a, a good company to work for and a sustainable organization. So those are the four keys to inspiration. Thanks, Julie. You know, also in this chapter called Involvement, uh, you involve them, you say, and I'd like to quote you, um, unless involvement has real teeth, meaning employees have information and power to shape or make a decision, it can quickly devolve into somewhat meaningless empowerment of the late 80s and early 90s, <laughs> promoting cynicism, not engagement. And it seems to me, uh, really, that paying uh, lip service is really probably worse than just being upfront about the organization's unwillingness to include people right from the, the get-go. You offer yeah. four steps uh, to building what you call genuine involvement. Right. Can you uh, walk us through these and, and tell us a little bit about them and, and perhaps an example? Sure. The first one is giving people the respect to inform them about business operations and challenges and show them how those link to day-to-day -day responsibilities. Honeywell's a great example of this where their CEO said, um, we don't, not everyone needs an MBA to understand how our business operates. Let me just explain the basics to you. He got employees understanding the importance of free cash flow. He communicated to people about these things. He communicated about the importance of managing receivables and, and bills and days outstanding. And an administrative assistant whose job it was to schedule meetings and prepare documents and manage schedules um, heard this with um, this information made her think about the fact that her boss actually sends out bills and that sometimes those bills don't get turned around in the period of time they should. So she took it upon herself because the CEO involved her, informed her about business operations. Um, she took it upon herself to call her counterparts at Honeywell's customers, say, hey, did your boss get this bill? Is it paid? Can you help expedite that? And she improved collections by $400,000 in one month. That was not part of her job responsibilities. But it shows the importance of involvement by informing people about business operations and helping them to take steps beyond their day-to-day -day responsibilities or um, to do their day-to-day -day responsibilities even better. Um, the next one is to gather input from employees, really listen, um, give them an opportunity to give you good ideas about how to address issues. Um, the next one is to create opportunities for people across the organization to collaborate on important issues. And finally, our fourth item here is to give employees the authority to do things that will generate stronger business outcomes, whether it's improved operations, reduced costs, better customer service, um, both on the job day-to-day -day and through special projects. 
great example here. It doesn't come from the Engaging Eight. We refer to it in the book, though, is with the Ritz-Carlton. It's well, well publicized here as well that any employee of that hotel chain has authority. They have a budget of, uh, it's been increased now above $400. I'm not sure to what amount, but to solve a problem because their, their strategic um, differentiator is, is customer service, and they recognize that customer service um, is not as strong when someone has to get an approval and another approval and another approval to solve a problem. They say if you see a way to solve a problem that could be impacting customer's experience, solve it. Up to $400, you can do it. So whether it's that the, the, the room service was delivered late and the, the waiter wants to comp the food or someone's favorite room wasn't available and they want to, to give them a reduction in room rates, they have the absolute full authority to do so. That's Great. involvement. Great example. Really powerful. Your final strategy uh, in the book is to reward them. And uh, I encounter managers regularly who feel compensation is the sole key to employee engagement mm -hmm. and also motivation, yet you offer an interesting window into MGM's thinking on compensation, which has really been successful for them. Can you discuss this final strategy as we close our time with you today, Julie, and share your thoughts uh, about how to use this most effectively? Absolutely. Now, when you all look at the top 10 drivers of engagement globally, you will see that compensation generally does not enter the picture. Compensation is important in bringing people into an organization and probably important to some degree in retaining people, but it's generally, the amount of compensation is generally not an engagement driver. Um, it needs to be, competition needs to be competitive generally to bring people in, to keep them, but to engage people, what people look for is fair compensation relative to others. They want to have open policies and transparent policies around compensation so they understand the rationale for their compensation relative to their contribution to the organization. Simple as that. So it's not all about the money. The other things that we were talking about are far more important. And when it comes to reward broadly, we think about the importance of, understand, of, of really understanding the relevance of compensation, benefits, and other financial rewards in driving engagement and then optimizing those, making sure you're providing enough, but not overspending in some of these areas because, as I said before, it's not all about the money and and employing that knee-jerk reaction, well, I need to pay someone more to get them more motivated, may um, actually not be a good use of money. Now, what is really important in the rewards arena is around appreciation and recognition. Um, we talk about the ABCs of reward, appreciation, benefits, and compensation. Appreciation actually comes first because it is the most significant in driving engagement. It's not a direct driver of engagement, but it's a strong accelerator of engagement. We see organizations that provide consistent and meaningful recognition to employees have engagement scores that are between 15 and 20 basis points, uh, percentage points higher than those that do not. Now, I think a lot has been written about recognition. 
just really important to remember that a pat on the back and thank you is okay, but that's not the most effective way to deliver recognition. Recognition should be meaningful and thoughtful. It should be knowledgeable. It should recognize the behavior that was powerful, that was important, that made a difference so that the individual who receives the recognition understands that's good and they should repeat that behavior. And people around the individual understand, oh, they're getting recognized because of that behavior. Maybe I should emulate that behavior. There are a couple of really good examples of recognition. Um, one is Campbell Soup Company, who provide a manager thank you kit uh, for managers across the organization. You know, Campbell Soup makes a goldfish cracker, so these thank you notes have a bunch of goldfish crackers depicted on the front with a big thank you written on the front. Giving the manager a clue that they can't, they have to say more than thank you on the blank inside of this thank you note. Um, and they get a supply renewed on a monthly basis, so they can't not use them. They need to actually pay attention to what their employees are doing and recognize them for the things that make a difference that they want to see repeated. Um, MGM Grand is another great example where they have an annual um, employee of the year that gets um, a huge party um, and becomes a focus for the um, really um, demonstrating the values of the, of the organization. And people do look to these employees of the year as, as examples of people that they should emulate. Great. Some really great ideas there. And Julie, I want to really thank you again for, in particular, for taking your time to call us from your London office today as you are serving your European clients. We really appreciate it and appreciate all of your work in the um, area of employee engagement. And I once again want to encourage folks that are either listening uh, live or will listen to this as a podcast uh, to get a copy of Closing the Engagement Gap. I highly recommend this book. And you can pick up a copy by visiting the Towers Parent website. That's www.towersparent.com forward slash gap forward slash index.htm. And following our interview today, you are once again invited to join in this conversation on employee engagement by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion. You can post questions for Julie, who will be joining us in this discussion group, along with your colleagues and peers and other authors of employee engagement uh, books that we've been interviewing. Uh, you, are, you will also find a link to today's recording, as well as other recordings that we've uh, done in the series. In June, our guest will be Lee Colin, who has written the book, Engaging Hearts and, the Hearts and Minds of All of Your Employees. And I will also be hosting Michael Lee uh, Stollard's Fired Up or Burned Out in July and Jake Jacobs' Real-Time Strategic Change in August. So to be sure that you are always in the know about Bookends events, please go to teamapproach.com. Sign up for uh, Bookends notification under the Free Stuff button on our website today. Once again, Julie, I'd like to thank you for being our wonderful guest today, for your, your time and, and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye now. <laughs>